welcome to Board Game Famous, the board game podcast that is two hosts short of the ideal player count. I'm your host, David, and I'm joined as always with my co-host, Michael. Howdy, howdy. Let's start this podcast as we always do with a, uh, with the soul-searching question. Michael, what you been playing? I haven't uh, been playing a lot of games because I live in the Carolinas and it's getting really nice out right now. So I've been doing outdoorsy stuff. Definitely before it gets hot here, and it's miserable to be outside. But one of the games that I have played is, and I believe I'm pronouncing this play, uh, correctly, Tunguru, which is the, we're going to call it a worker placement game. I'm not sure, I'm not sure the best way to describe it. But basically, you are a Pacific Islander clan, and you're sailing from island to island, how many Moana songs did you sing while you were watching it, while, while you were playing it? I mean, I just said you're welcome. You just said you're welcome a lot. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> but yeah, uh, you have you have different cards in your hands, and, you're, and they each represent a different person in society. Like, you have your chief, and you've got your fresher person, and they grant you special actions that you do that, uh, that round. And after you play that, person then you pass that person to the left and so you know that the person on your left has those options available because some of the actions that you can do affect your neighbors and that kind of thing you're you're playing these cards from your hand that represent different members of society that give you different bonus kinds of actions and you're sailing from island to island uh putting settlers and building monuments and that kind of thing i didn't do very well I got less than half of what the winning score was. In, uh, in, in my game group, that is what we call a blowout. Like, if yeah. somebody's like, I killed, you have to score more than twice as much as the lowest player. Double-digit points, and they had triple-digit points, just to put it in perspective. <laughs> it, was, it was one of those um, where I got lapped on the, the edge of the board with the scoring thing. <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, it's one of those scoring tracks that goes around up to 100, and I got lapped. It was, did not feel great, but I had a fun time playing. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely played the exact wrong strategy, <laughs> but but it, but it was fun. So, David, what have you been playing? I've been playing a lot of games. I've had, to, I've had the opportunity to play with quite a few different groups of people. So I went home for our brother Nate's high school graduation. So I got to play games with Brother Isaiah and Brother Andrew. And I guess Nate why was there. Do, why, why do you talk like our family is a group of monks? <laughs> I mean, they might as well be. <laughs> so I got to play uh, Cryptid, which is a logical deduction game. And it's really fun. I'm pretty darn good at it because the, uh, the, the deduction is every single person has a rule based on where the mysterious creature that you're trying to find lives, and you're asking each other yes or no questions based on their rule, and if you piece all the rules together, it matches one single location on the board. And the rules just tend to follow the way I think, so I, I can quickly I can quickly locate the, uh, the monster, the cryptid that you're looking for. So I destroyed Isaiah and Andrew in two games. I with you and the brothers one time, and I remember it's a lot easier to win that game whenever Andrew actually gets his rule right. <laughs> we played uh, we played with a 30-second timer as well, so Andrew can't just sit there and think, 
as he is the analytical one of our brothers. Analytical and often wrong. <laughs> so that was a game that I haven't been able, that I haven't played in a while that I got to uh, enjoy again. Another game I got to play was uh, a party game, which I don't normally like to play. I don't really normally go in for those. But it was Pantone the Card Game. And you basically get a hand of cards that are famous people or characters in TV shows and movies. And you use what are essentially paint swatches like you would get at the hardware store and lay them out to try and depict your your famous person while everybody guesses who it is. And it's... My favorite part of that game was when somebody lays out a picture and nobody has any clue who it is. It goes around the table. You get a hint based on what the card says. And nobody has any idea what it is. You go around the table and you get another hint. And then it's obvious who it is. Like, they did a great job laying out that picture. Of course that's what it is. Ellen laid out Scooby-Doo, and it was so good. Yeah, it's, right, it's, so, is it, is it the goal for them to make it obvious or the not goal, obvious? The goal is to make it obvious. Because you want somebody to guess it, and if somebody guesses it, the, the artist and the guesser get the exact same amount of points. But it goes down with the number of hints that you have to give before it's given. The artist gets less points the more hints you have to give. Everybody gets less points the more hints you oh. have to give. Because the guesser and the artist get the same amount of points. And it was... I'm not usually into party games, but that was pretty fun. And we played it about four times or so. The card I got was uh, Kylo Ren. And I was like, how am I going to do that? Oh, I know exactly how I'm going to do that. I did the scene where he's shirtless in the movie, so I did a bunch of a bunch of the the uh, like tan colored ones with a little one poking up for his head and then his pants, and that's all I did. And the first guesser got it first try. Nice. Was it Isaiah? No, I, I played this with uh, friends here in St. Louis. Oh, nice. Uh, <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. So Jillian took a look at it and just went, "Is that?" Is that Kylo Ren? Damn right it is. Not Kylo Ren. <laughs> and the last game that I want to talk about is I also played a game called San Juan. It's uh, it's an older game. It is the card game version of Puerto Rico. I've owned San Juan for five or six years, I think. And it is probably my second most played board game. Uh, I haven't had to. I haven't gotten to play it in a long time. Finally got it to the table, and I would describe it as. The most fun that beige can be. There are two types of buildings in it. There are the production buildings and the city buildings, and they're all they're all cards. It's a hand management game, and it uses the mechanic like in Puerto Rico, where you choose an action and everybody else gets a less powerful version of that action. The city cards are all beige, and I describe the production buildings as the colorful buildings. The indigo is blue. And that's about the only color you get, because uh, the sugar plantation is white, the tobacco plant is brown, the coffee plant is darker brown, and then the silversmithy is gray. And that's the color in the game. Oh, yeah, I played that one before. It is definitely not a, uh, (laughs) it's definitely not a colorful one. (laughs) No, but it's fun. It's a really good hand management game. It's uh, the predecessor to Race for the Galaxy, where you have to discard cards to pay for the 
the actual card you want to play. And that's a mechanic that I really like. If you like people being frustrated with difficult choices. Yeah, it's just the, you can't build everything, so you have to make a choice. Which one of these three are you going to build, or something like that. And that's a lot of fun. I think I said the last game I want to talk about, but that was a lie, because I have one more game to talk about, and I'm going to talk about it on the road to the 100. I got a chance to play A Feast for Odin. I got a chance to play A Feast for Odin. It's been on my radar for quite some time, because Ellen and I both like Uwe Rosenberg's Polyomino-style games. I'm pretty darn good at those, but only... Only the square pieces. I can't, uh, I can't pack together regular oblong pieces. So we were visiting family in Springfield. And there's a board game store there that lets you rent board games for $5. You get it for a week for 5 bucks. It's not terrible. So I rented that. We brought it home. I learned all the rules. It's a worker placement game on top of Polyomino with... The most ridiculous amount of worker placement options ever. I know you said you didn't like the Dark Mountain expansion to Champions of Midgard because it opens up the board too much. Yep. This, it's all open. If you want to do something, you can probably do it somehow. And you're placing your workers to get these square, rectangular pieces to place them on your board to cover up spaces because each space is worth a negative amount of points. And I really liked... That mechanic in Patchwork, but A Feast for Odin for me, I didn't get it. It was it was too obtuse for what I was doing. I think that Patchwork has the mechanic perfectly distilled down. I don't I don't have a need to own A Feast for Odin. I'm glad I played it. I don't know if I'll ever play it again. Is it one of those where it's just the uh, mishmash of mechanics put together? Uh, and the objectives that you're kind of trying to manage that just didn't feel like they clicked well together kind of thing. This may have been an issue with me playing his other Polyomino-style games. Like, Patchwork takes 30 to 45 minutes. Cottage Garden takes 45 minutes. Indian Summer takes, like, 20 to 30 minutes when it's just Ellen and I playing. A Feast for Odin took, like, two hours. And I really didn't get that much more enjoyment out of it than I would have from playing the other Polyomino-style games. There are a lot... There's not that many mechanics. It's mostly worker placement, and then on top of that, you're just puzzling out these pieces on your board. But that's largely... uh, That's largely solitaire. And I just felt... I just felt like it was unnecessary. I didn't... uh, I don't need to play that one again. Hey, you don't have to love them all. I don't have to love them all. It's not the game on the top 100 that I've disliked the most at least did that sentence make sense yes (laughs) no the game i've disliked the most so far has been seventh continent not played that one oh my gosh it's an exploration game that has just constant push your luck mechanics which is my least favorite mechanic it's supposed to be like a campaign game but there's no direction in it so it's open world which some people like I don't like those. I don't really care for Skyrim-style video games. I, I need I need structure. I need rules. I need discipline. You you are one of those people who finds beauty and simplicity 
of the mechanics and the constraints that you are put under. Oh, yeah. And in Seventh Continent, you just don't have any... There's just no constraints. It's too, too tabletop RPG for you. It's too too much. Yeah. Look at that. Two, two Road to the 100s for the price of one. What a bonus. Yeah. As an update on my progress, I'm sitting at a total of 48 of the top 100. I'm at 30-something. Well, if you want to uh, get it, get up to 30-something plus one, I'd like to play Russian Railroads this weekend. Play Can we one. convince the brothers to do Russian Railroads? They've played, so far they've played Voyages of Marco Polo in Puerto Rico. Well, the top 100 is filled with a lot of Euros. It was like, hey brothers, we're in this really dense heavy Euro game that we're going <laughs> to play possibly only one time, <laughs> online, not even together. Thanks brothers. It's for it's a personal goal, man. You're really <laughs> helping me out. <laughs> it's exactly how it's going down. And you know what? I like my family. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure uh, the others are having a good time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm on this road with you, so I'm glad to play these games as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, games that wouldn't either be... I'm not going to go out and get a copy of Marco Polo. Not going to happen. No. But I'm glad I played it. Yeah. It's interesting <laughs> so. to see. It's interesting to see what the gaming community holds above all other games. This Fortnite's game of the Fortnite is Viticulture slash Tuscany, a Stonemaier game that came out in a year. <laughs> I do like the attempt. I do think that we should be saying what what company produces the games we talk about and what year they came out. Maybe not year, because that's that's a little bit more too much research. <laughs> so yeah, Stonemaier release. Viticulture in 2013, and they released Viticulture uh, Tuscany Edition the year after I played Tuscany before I actually played the original Viticulture. It is a worker placement game about owning and operating a winery and fulfilling orders and people's desires of specific wines that they would like. And I think the most interesting mechanic about this worker placement is it is a game that happens in Two seasons for Viticulture, and four seasons for Tuscany, where the workers that you have, you have to commit them to a single season. So you commit them uh, to spring, and if you commit them to spring, you can't use them in summer, fall, or winter. And once you move on to summer, if you commit them in summer, uh, you can't use them, and all that kind of stuff. You know, there are some slight exceptions about being able to retrieve workers, standard things, and worker placements, but... Uh, if you use them in one season, you cannot use them in the future. And, and uh, there's a lot of that typical worker placement of uh, positioning yourself in torn order so you can be able to do that one action in a particular season and everyone's working off the same board and all that kind of stuff. It's a, lo- it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. So I haven't played Tuscany. I've only played base viticulture. Are the sections... So on the Tuscany map, there's more seasons... Do they separate the the original actions just into more seasons with a couple other actions thrown in? Um, I've only played Viticulture once, so I can't say for certain. <laughs> uh, but uh, there are you have more workers and more actions. Yeah, I would I would never go back to Viticulture. If I were to recommend this game to someone, I would recommend the Tuscany Essential Edition 
because that's what's actually for sale at, at your local game store now, is the Tuscany version. Uh, I don't know if our local game store even sells base Viticulture right now. I thought I thought Tuscany Essential Edition was just an expansion for Viticulture Essential Edition. Because you, you can still buy it separate. 2016 Viticulture Tuscany Essential Edition. I think it's I think it's just uh, the Essential Edition is Tuscany. You know, I think a lot of people, at least whenever I started getting into board games, their intro to worker placements were uh, Wards of Waterdeep, uh, Champions of Midgar. This was the first worker placement that I played that really showed me like it, it, it was it was the one that opened my eyes to the different options that could be out there and you know it's one of those older games as well and I like uh, like you I like worker placements for shuffling for pace uh, place and I first played it at a at our board game convention Mega Moose where they just had a list of games that were going to be taught that this convention has teachers that will schedule times that they're going to teach a game. And then so whenever you get there, you see the list of games that are going to be taught by someone and they have a dedicated person to that. And so you go up and sign up and say, Oh, I've never played uh, Viticulture Tuscany before. Uh, I'd love to, because I've heard great things about it. So I signed up for that. Uh, my friend and I did, and we sat down with a bunch of random people and uh, someone taught it to us right then and there. And it, w- it was a great time. I fell in, I fell in love with it. Just the different avenues for success between making, you know, making grapes and aging wines and all that kind of stuff to get more money, which is more points and all that. So you mentioned the mechanic of trying to compete for turn order. I really enjoy that mechanic in the game because you you decide what time you're going to wake up in the day is essentially what it is. Based on how early you wake up, you get a different benefit. So you can wake up the latest, meaning you go last in the turn, but you get the strongest benefit, which I think is was originally done in the board game Fresco, but it was really adapted well here. Yeah, and, and not only that, the order that you choose to go is based on the person who first passes during winter. So the first person who is done in winter is the person who gets to choose where they get to go. And like a lot of the point scoring things aren't happen in winter. So there's people who save a lot of workers to be able to score a lot of points in winter. They're the people who get to choose the last in what they get to do next year. And so it has that nice, interesting balance saying, oh, if I backload this, then I'm not going to be able to get that bonus that I want for next year. And those bonuses are really good. They can really put you on the right foot for success. I remember the last time I played, when you bid for turn order, you have a little rooster meeple. Yep. That wakes you up. And one of the players would not stop using that rooster as a worker placement action. I'm like, were you sending the chicken to tend the grapes? What are you doing? It's a very capable chicken. Just let him do it. He, he would reach across the board, grab his chicken like it was a regular worker, and then move it. And then sit there and we'd just go, hey man, what are you doing? And then he'd realize what he had done. The chicken's done tending the grapes. He's going to build another <laughs> cellar next year. All right, it just makes sense. <laughs> I don't know if you can tell this, but I, I, I like most of Stonemeyer's games. I haven't played Euphoria. I know you have that one, and you've brought it on my request a couple of times. We just haven't had a chance to play it together yet. Scythe is one of Ellen's favorite games. It's one of my favorite games. It's really good. 
It's been on the back burner for a little while, though. I did want to start the Rise of Fenris campaign until we finished Pandemic Legacy Season 0, which we just did. And I'm excited to start my next campaign game, which is probably going to be Sleeping Gods. Got my hands on a copy. I'm really looking forward to that. And I think that's a really good segue into our next topic, which is Brother Talk. Cult of the New. And so this this is one of the topics that I put down because, and you don't have to raise your hands, uh, viewers, but uh, if some of us might have a large board game collection and we see the nice shiny thing being announced by our favorite game publishers or see something on Kickstarter or go into our local board game store and say, oh, I've always wanted to play that, I definitely can get that to the table. And picking up a a new board game. And then you get a group of people together and you get that board game out. You punch all the hexes and all of that. You get, get your meeples and you organize the colors and the resources. I'm going to interrupt you for a second. Punching out a board game is one of my favorite things to do. <laughs> Not complaining about punching out a board game. That's, uh, that's, that is half of the fun of a new game. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I've sat down with people who just bought a board game. And we're like, we're at, at the game store. They just bought it. They decide that they want to play it. And they start opening it up. And I'm like, hey, do you want me to help you? As in, hey, do you want me to punch the hexes for you? Because <laughs> I will. <laughs> but yeah, you know, we get that new game out. We get it at the table. We learn the rules. And we, we play it. And then that game <laughs> gets put back into the box. And put on the shelf in our collection. And it doesn't get played again. Maybe once or twice more, and, uh, and it doesn't get played again. And the cycle repeats. Of we get a new board game, and we get people together, and we play it, and so on and so forth. Are you anti-Cult of the New, then? I'm not anti-Cult of the New. I have tried to justify Cult of the New by broadening the people I play with. Mm. For... And I, per- I personally do not try to buy a lot of new board games. But by engaging in the community of board gamers, I know collectively I will be able to play new uh, board games on the regular. For our listeners at home, if you don't know what Cult of the New is, how the hell did you find this podcast? One. (laughs) And two, Cult of the New is the idea that you're always moving on to the next game, the new thing coming out, the next big flash in the pan, essentially. Always searching for that next new game. Other other hobbies have this as well, but board gaming, I feel like it's an issue where you're just playing a new game all the time. New game, new, 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 new. Let's let's play the new hotness, the newest game, whatever. And uh, I have have played a lot of games because of this. Um, In the before times, I spent a huge amount of time going to my local board game store hanging out with people, and they'd be like, hey, I brought this game, I want to play it. And I'm like, hell yeah. We put it on the table, we learn how to play it, and, you know, I've worn uh, so many games. And I, I like playing my games um, as well, but not to bash the cult of new. I just think there is value in finding games that you like and playing them repeated. repeated. I think board games are meant to be played, 
and one of the negative things about the Cult of New is just buying board games that are not being played. Yeah, those are all all great thoughts. I I am not a part of the Cult of the New. I'm not about getting the next new title, the next and owning it at least. I do love learning and playing new games. I constantly listening to rules videos on how to play games, so I'm always looking for that next game I can play, but it's not necessarily the next game I'm going to own. On this road to the 100 that I'm doing, it's I guess I'm I'm a part of Cult of the New to me. Yeah. You know, I'm not I I'm not researching what's the next hot thing. Um I did talk about getting Sleeping Gods. It's a it's the new game by Ryan Lockett from Red Raven Games. But I own several Red Raven games already. I know his game style. I know it's going to be a hit for me. Yeah. I do a lot of research into my board games because another thing that Cult of the New can lead to is just buying a game on the hype and end up hating it, which is what happened with me in Seventh Continent. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I haven't had a big negative reaction for Cult of the New. I bought, I bought Wingspan on the hype of the Cult of the New. Uh, I was one of the people who got a copy with uh, whenever I knew there was a huge backlog of orders and whatnot. I was one of the people who actually got a copy at release. And I didn't hate the game. I just knew it wasn't the game for me. So I ended up uh, selling it to a friend uh, mm-hmm. for a discount. But, you know, th- that is... I I am not immune to the cult of the new. I uh, I have definitely gotten hyped for games before based on what people say, based on uh, things I read online, based on uh, publishers I like releasing games. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so yeah. I do a pretty good job of getting around the cult of the new by renting games from my local library. So that gives me an option. That gives me a menu of games that are new to me that I can select from. And also playing games online with brothers. That's been really helpful and a lot of fun. And also renting board games from the board game, uh, from the local board game store. It's really helped curb some of the uh, need to buy games. Miniature Market is a local board game store for me. And every time I go into their store, they have crazy in-store de- uh, discounts on a lot of their games. And every time I walk in there, I, I just say to myself, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of evil. <laughs> through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, because my wallet would be empty if I bought everything I had a, an impulse to buy. I think one of the important things to take from people in this community suffering from the cult of new, it's really a reflection of the renaissance that we're seeing in the board game community. There are so many good new games coming out every year. We are living in a renaissance of board gaming. And it's unfortunate to say that we are not going to be able to play them all. We are not going to be able to play them all. And so this cult of the new of just seeing that great game or that great game and that great game. Because that's what's happening. All these great creators are creating great games all the time. And that's just that's just what the... Uh, the community's like that's what the industry's like and it's it's a good thing you just try not to get yourself caught up in it reminds me of a game ellen and i play where we try and pet the most dogs every single day and whoever pets the most dogs wins and the sad fact is you just can't pet every puppy in the world 
Moving on to mail time. Now, this mail time comes from one of our viewers online. The question of this week is, what is the best way to decide what to play on game night? We do a couple of methods for determining what to play on game night. And if it's if I'm doing a game night with my friends, I have the board game collection of the group. So typically how we decide what to play is we play the game that I bring. <laughs> There's not really much anybody can do about it, as I have the prominent collection. It's a But how do you decide what to bring. I, I'm, I'm sure you are balancing what you want to play versus what other people enjoy. I am. I typically bring games that everybody likes, or I will front load like a week or two of games that everybody enjoys or other the other players really enjoy, and then after a few weeks of that, I sneak a dry boring Euro into it to play, yeah. so, we can get, so we can get the games that I want to play. When Ellen and I are playing at home, it's usually just Ellen will pick three games, choose, okay, these are the three that I want to play, you choose one of them. Or what is also common is we do the bowl game, and we just get a bunch yeah. of strips of paper, write down what we want to play, put them in a jar, draw games out of that. And that works out really well for just the two of us. Uh, yeah, that, that sounds like a pretty good method. And then before times, whenever I was going to uh, my game store on a regular basis... People would bring up the games. Uh, you know, I, I would bring games that I enjoyed playing, but, you know, I wouldn't feel too bad not playing. Uh, and then we'd maybe have 8 to 12 people, so we'd split up into two or th- three groups. And what we'd do is we'd sit around a table, and people who had a game they really wanted to play, they'd pull it out of the bag, and they'd put it on the table. And so you'd get, you know, three or four games on or, you know, maybe five games on the table. And then people would say, oh, I want to play that. And then we kind of form groups based on that is, you know, you'd show up, I'd have games just in case, and then people would pull their games out, put them on the table, and you just point out which ones they want to play, and we'd form groups from there. It's like, oh, this takes up the three, four people, So we, and then they go off to another table and they play that game. Uh, it's like, oh, I'd be willing to play that, but not that, and then blah, 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 and then split up into groups. So that's that's how we typically do it. So we don't do the whole half hours like, oh, what do we want to play? So it's like, take a game that, that the owner wants to play and can teach and put it on the table. Well, you were Earlier you said, uh, I try and pick a game that uh, everybody enjoys. Sure, I try and pick games that everybody enjoys. But at the end of the day, usually everybody in our, my game group is too polite. Oh, I'll play anything. I'll eat anywhere. <laughs> it gets to the point where somebody has to make a decision. Or you yeah. default into what my game group has done for lunch games at work in the before times, is we play Dominion every single day. Because that's the game everybody is fine with playing. And that's why I, I just bring other games. People are like, oh, where's Dominion? I don't have Dominion today. <laughs> yeah, We played Dominion every day last week. We had a turkey sandwich every day last week. Saying there's something wrong with turkey sandwich? Yeah, I'm trying to take down the turkey industry. Brothers Murph, we're still waiting. We're still waiting for a response. I'm sitting here at home patiently, just waiting for you guys to show up for this gauntlet. The only thing I have to say to the Brothers Murph is... <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Just like Marty McFly in Back to the Future 2. What are you, chicken? He'll do anything for that. <laughs> um, if you have any questions or comments or general ramblings about board games, please email us at boardgamefamous at gmail.com. Oh, bye-bye now. Bye.